Christmas, everybody, again. God bless you. Is it good to be in the house of the Lord? Yes. Amen. Well, this morning we're going to ask that all the children stay in here with us today as we worship on this Christmas day, this Lord's Day. Amen? Amen. Well, turn with me, please, to the Gospel of Luke. While we have been in Luke's Gospel for several weeks, and I know that this is the day that we normally look at this passage at Christmas, I want us to dig just a little bit deeper into this text, Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. But then I also want to touch base comparing what's in Luke 2 with what we began to look at last night in Isaiah chapter 7. We'll be referencing Isaiah 7 and Luke chapter 2 as well. So if you're able to stand, let's stand in reverence for the reading of God's Word, a wonderful Christmas passage of the birth of our Savior. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. Let's pray. Dear Father God, we give you praise this morning. This Christmas morning, December 25th, the year 2022, we thank you for this privilege of worshiping this Lord's Day. 
We thank you for reminding us of the greatest gift that you have given all of us, and that was your son, Jesus Christ. But God, you took upon yourself all of our weaknesses, all of our sins, all of our failures. That's because you loved us so much. And it was only through your willingness and your providence and your great sovereignty and your omnipotent power, Lord, that we are saved and that we can come to your throne. And so, God, this morning, as we remember this simple passage, this story that all of us learned from our childhood up, Lord, I pray that you would cause us to see exactly what you did those 2,000 years ago. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Have a seat. Today, December 25th, I mean, this is a day that, that is set aside by the church and to remember and celebrate the birth of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And I emphasize that this is a day set aside by the church. I don't care what the secular media says. I don't care what the calendar says. I don't care. I mean, I'm glad that this is a official national holiday. But this is a day set aside by the church to worship and to celebrate and to remember what God has done for us. Remember. I mean, very often, though, we we come to this day with the image of a child born in a stable, a child of humble beginnings, the offspring of a young couple, a man and a woman with no wealth or no status. Two people, not yet married, but betrothed, a little bit more than an engagement, but not quite fully married. They were chosen by God to give birth and raise a baby boy, a boy that the angel Gabriel called the son of the most high in Luke chapter one, verse 35. Do you remember that? The son of the most high. I mean, we, we gathered in silence last night to ponder the night when our savior was born. And Luke chapter two reminds us that all this time last night and this morning was was is special. Last night was a holy night. This day is a holy day. Who is this Christ? I mean, this is the time when the Christ child was born. The promised child that God promised many, many years before his birth, he would come. Who is this child? Who was he? He was the promised child, a child like any, like unlike any other child ever born. He's a child unlike any that was born before and not like any child ever born since. That's important. Jesus was born. This child was unlike any other child ever born before or since. Have you let that sink in for a minute? I mean, a promised child. God promised that this child, not just a child, but this child would come to accomplish what kings of men could never accomplish. I mean, when we read Luke chapter 2, verse 1 through 7, and then when we connect the events of Mary and Joseph traveling to the great prophet Isaiah's declaration in Isaiah chapter 7 to King Ahaz, we see here that God knew what he was doing all along. I mean, the narrative here of of Luke chapter 2, this Roman census forced travel 
of a young child, of a young couple dealing with a late pregnancy and this forced travel, these events of the Roman census tell us much about the providential hand of God. You know what providence means? It's that God directs and controls all human events. Now, the Christian understanding of this is not the same as the pagan understanding of fate. I want us to understand this. God does control all events. He directs all things that happen. But this is not the same thing as in this Roman period of the pagan idea that somehow the gods have a fate control over all human beings. The idea that no matter what we do, we are fated to a certain end. That's not the biblical understanding. God's providence is that God is sovereign and God is in control. Yet God's providence also includes the fact that he is providential over all of our choices too. No matter what choice you make, God is in control of those choices, yet they are still free choices. Has that blown your mind yet this morning? So this, we now understand, even though this is a Roman period, we cannot confuse the fact that God's providential hand directs all things. Yet we as human beings, even these human beings, all chose every action that they made. But God directed even that. Wow. I mean, this, this story in Luke chapter 2 is an all too familiar greeting of our season. It's one that we should not take for granted. Uh, th- this idea of saying Merry Christmas. It's a greeting that has significance to the church and significance even for the secular world despite the rejection of all things pertaining to God's will. I mean, this passage in Luke's gospel, this is, Luke chapter 2 is the most read passage at Christmas time. How many people, how many families here read this text at Christmas time? As a family, do you ever read Luke chapter 2 any other time of the year? Probably, well, some people say yes, but most people probably don't. I mean, this passage in Luke's gospel is a significant accounting of the birth of our Savior It shows many truths about God's providential hand that leads to the important, and I want to emphasize this, historical account of the birth of our Lord. The timing of this birth was no random thing. And today I want us to take a look at the historical and theological events here that all had to align perfectly for the fulfillment of the prophecies of God. I mean, so many pieces to the puzzle of human history and God's divine control and his interaction with human affairs had to coordinate over centuries to this one point. I mean, in order for the truths of the gospel to occur just as they did, God had to be in control of all of this. Even from the time of Isaiah 500 years prior to this point in Luke chapter 2, God was directing every detail to this point. Think about this in verses 1 and 2. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered or some uh, translations should be taxed. And that is correct. It was a census, but it was a census tax. Joseph and Mary were also betrothed. Look here in verse verse 2. This was the first registration or tax when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And then 
and all went to be registered, each to his own town. So here's where we see in verses 4 and 5 that this young couple, Joseph and Mary, were caught up in this event. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David. I mean, we as Christians, if we understand the Scriptures, we know the Davidic covenant here. That's clearly connected. And then verse 5, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And we know in Luke chapter 1, Mary's significance. The Holy Spirit overshadowed her, and she conceived a son. I mean, their pregnancy, their betrothal, the timing of their journey, even the uh, the genealogical timeline uh, of the lineage of David in verses 3 through 5, none of that is mistake. I mean, if you're taking notes, Matthew chapter 1, we read of the Davidic line that leads to Joseph. Even in Luke chapter 3, we read of the priestly line of genealogies that goes up to Mary. You, you harmonize both of these lineages to this moment in verses 3 through 5 of Luke chapter 2. Who's in control of all of that? Our God's hand was directing every step. Even the timing of the birth in verses 6 through 7. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Think about this, ladies. If anyone who's ever given birth to a child, how would you like it if your husband came to you and you were nine months pregnant, could give birth at any moment? Hey, honey, we've got to go on a road trip. All you ladies are giggling. I mean, I can't imagine Joseph going to his wife, his betrothed, who is pregnant, I mean, ready to give birth. Hey, honey, I'm sorry. The Roman government says we have to go to Bethlehem. Now, let's go. And it wasn't, I mean, traveling pregnant, I know, has to be uncomfortable no matter what. But can you imagine sitting on the back of a donkey for 100 miles? (laughs) The timing of all this and the... The stamina and even the perseverance of Mary and Joseph to do what had to be done. All of this God directs for the circumstance of this birth. Verse 6 and 7. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. It's amazing that these two verses, 6 and 7, are so simple yet have given us so much fruit For many stories over the centuries, haven't they? I mean, even last night we were at home and we had some friends over and we were watching the Nativity Story movie that came out one night, 2010, 2009. We still watch it every year. Now, I'm sitting there picking out all the discrepancies that they left out, but it was still a good movie. The pageantry of these two verses over the history of our church is phenomenal, isn't it? Just two verses in Luke's gospel tells us so much about the providential hand of God. Here's how we can understand God's providence here. Here's what John Calvin says. He says, thus we see that the holy servants of God, even though they sometimes wander about, not knowing where they are going, still keep the right path because God directs their steps. Can you imagine Mary and Joseph, even though Mary had been visited by Gabriel, she understood how this pregnancy came about. Even Joseph, we read in Matthew chapter one, had a dream and he was told the nature of Mary's pregnancy. But even then, can you imagine, Okay, God, how come we now have to go to 
Bethlehem at this time? How come we have to be forced by the Roman government to go pay a tax at this time? Isn't this too difficult? Isn't this going to disrupt your plans, dear Lord? But we have to remember that as God's providential hand directs all things, very often we as human beings, we we do wander about in our own way, not really knowing where we're going, but somehow God still keeps us on the right path to his providential end. Ponder that this morning. I mean, the first point that we can glean from these verses is that God's providence is no less spectacular when the command even of a tyrant Roman emperor is directed for God's purposes. Those of us in our evangelical churches, we bemoan, we, we moan and we groan and we complain and we raise up stress levels because of the government of the United States and the debauchery that they are now headed into and have been headed into. And we complain and we complain and we complain. But think about the Roman government. Not much worse than us. Yet God even used that for his providential end for Mary and Joseph and the birth of his son on that special night. Amen. The decree from Caesar Augustus was not a surprise to God, nor was it a diversion for his will. Not at all. I mean, the place where God's son was to be born, we remember, was prophesied in Micah chapter 5, long time before this night. If Mary had not been compelled by law to travel from Nazareth, her home, to Bethlehem, her husband's uh, land, then would she have wanted to give birth at home near her mother in Nazareth? I think that would have been her desire. But Caesar's declaration required that a tax was to be levied and a census was to be taken that each citizen would be accounted for. I mean, the people of Judea were accustomed to paying the temple tax at this time. That's what we see in Exodus chapter 30. There was a customary annual tax to the temple of a half shekel. And part of this timing was at that annual tax time. They were to pay this tax anyway, and, and Rome took advantage of that and said, okay, they're going to have to pay this shekel tax to the temple. Let's add to that this year and do a census tax and collect more money as well. That's what was happening here. So, I mean, this was the customary time for this tax to the temple, but this time was unique. I mean, an ungodly man seizes and carries off what God was accustomed to collect from his people. That's also what was happening here. Rome was taking what was normally taken for the, for the, for the, for the operation of the temple. I mean, it was in effect just as if Caesar had prohibited the Jews from choosing for themselves to honor God and to be considered his people. It was as if Rome was saying, you're going to serve us at this time when you normally serve God. But here in verses 6 and 7, reminding again, while they were there in Bethlehem, the time came for her to give birth. I mean, we see here in Luke's account of Christ's birth, the evidence of his genuine humanity. Jesus was fully human. He was born just like you and I are born. His pregnancy, or Mary's pregnancy, his life in the womb for those nine months or so, no different than yours or mine. The only difference is the conception. The only difference was the conception. But the nine months of Jesus in his mother's womb was a full term of pregnancy. And it was not just an instant manifestation of a of a demigod. 
in the pagan in the pagan tradition, they had many stories of, of pagan gods interacting with young maidens to produce demigods. That's not what's happening here. This was a unique presence of God himself. I mean, remember when we read earlier in Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38, we looked at that for two weeks there, that the angel Gabriel visited Mary, telling her of God's favor upon her. I mean, this moment of incarnation occurred at the normal nine months prior to the events that would happen here in Luke chapter 2. God's timing is perfect. I mean, the point of verse 6 here is that when she gave birth to Jesus, that he was born naturally, not supernaturally. He was born at the time that he was to be born. The full completion of a nine-month pregnancy culminated at the exact moment in the exact place in Bethlehem as God prophesied what happened. He predicted what happened centuries and centuries before. The point of verse 6 is that Jesus was born as a human being. He was a true human being with body and soul, just like other children, only without sin. Because even though he was born of Mary, the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary's sin nature. That's what we read in Luke 1. So that the baby born would be sinless and not carry the curse of Adam. There was no human father. Joseph was not the human father, even though he raised Jesus. So, so Joseph's sin nature would not pass on to Jesus. The Father was God Himself. The Holy Spirit caused this miraculous conception. I mean, the divine nature of Jesus did not begin in Mary, but has been from eternity. We also have to remember that Jesus always was, even before He was born. That's another thing to ponder here. Although Mary had been known in the church tradition as the mother of God, the divine always was and always has been. The two natures, divine and human, are joined in Christ. The divine is that of his father in heaven. The human nature is that of his mother, Mary. And this is the profound mystery of this morning. It exceeds our understanding. I mean, we, we love to ponder and meditate on the little baby in the cradle, in the manger, don't we? The baby. As I say that, I can see all the guys are going, well, that's just a baby. But all the girls in the room are going, oh, a baby. Big difference. But this baby was not just a baby. This was God taking on our humanity. Stepping into our failures and our weaknesses, taking all of that upon himself. And he says, I am here because I want to save you and I want to redeem you. In verse seven, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. There was no place for them in Bethlehem to stay. I mean, it is said that the whole life of Christ was a continual passion you know, others die martyrs, but Jesus was born a martyr. I mean, he, he, he who is glorious and, and miraculous and splendid, who is clothed with light as with the robe, was wrapped in poor rags for diapers. 
I mean, that he might cover and conceal our sins from the Father's eyes. He pulls a sack over himself and lets himself lie in dust and on earth in a stinky, filthy cow stall to make amends for the improper desires that we all have. If you imagine what your sin is, it is worse than a cow stall. You ever wallowed in your sin like a pig wallows in the muck and the mire? I mean, to make amends for this improper desire that we have, God does this. He, he takes on the filthiest and the most humble and destitute situation at his birth and so that he can cover the passionate desires that our parents in the Garden of Eden pass on to us. In, in this dirty stall that was made for livestock, Jesus willingly wallows in this muck and the manure of our sin so that we should not in the end smell of the stench of hell and the odor of the devil's dung as we go into heaven. Think about that. I mean, although he's Jesus, he, he, he's over all of heaven. He, he did not grasp after heaven, but let himself yield and humble and bow into a narrow little manger, a feeding trough, as if in a prisoner's stocks. Think about the limitations of our natural being. You pondering that? Is, is your body limited? Is this world we live in limited as if we are prisoners and trapped? God is beyond that. But in Jesus Christ on this morning... He willingly locks himself into our prison of sin and fallen nature. Let that sink in for a minute. Knowing that as he does this, as Jesus is born this way, that in the end he is born for the atonement. He is born to die for us. He is born to liberate us from this bondage of sin that we find ourselves in, to liberate us from the bondage of this fallen world that we fall, that we are in, to liberate us from the stench and of the manure of our sin. Think about that. That's this morning, folks. Now, this is not a very sweet look at the baby Jesus sermon, is it? Because when we look, when you really look at Luke chapter two and you think she gave birth to her firstborn son, ladies, how many of you would like to give birth to a baby in a cattle trough? That wouldn't be your choice, would it? But she does because this is God's providential timing. I mean, this is all mysterious to us. What is the mystery of Jesus's birth? I mean, far too many of us when we see the Christmas narrative, this is merely an annual tradition that warms our hearts as we celebrate Christmas with family and with friends. And please do celebrate with your children, build memories at home with your family as it should be. But folks, let's also understand, and children don't need to grasp this yet. Children can get this as they get older. But as we understand the weight of our sin, as we understand the, the, the gravity of this fallen world we live in, to understand how, how God, who is beyond all of this, who is perfect and holy, willingly steps into this for us. For us. That's the greatest romance that you could ever imagine, isn't it? 
And I sit there and as I say that, what comes to my mind is the rom-com Christmas movies that are so popular right now on Hallmark and Lifetime. I think they miss it, don't they? I mean, how do, how do the two natures of Jesus, the starkly different natures of the divine and the human, the holy and the fallen, the perfect and the stinky, if you want to use that language. I mean, we're stinky. That's why we take baths. Our sin stinks. But these two natures somehow harmonize in this one child, Jesus Christ. And it's a beautiful thing. I mean, how is it that the creator of the universe could step into a frail and broken human existence, not just appear human, not just be an appendage to our heart, but to be us? And from the moment of conception all through his life into death, redeem us. I mean, when we think about this Christmas time, bad theology, and dare I say heretical theology, has often reduced the mysterious birth of Jesus to merely a distortion of the true nature of what is the grand miracle of his incarnation and his birth. Heretical thinking describes this incarnation as a mere manifestation of God's presence. Oh, God is just present. I mean, it's as if God just is somehow alongside us and beside us in our human life rather than him being in a real incarnation in real human flesh. I mean, I think it's important for us to ponder as we often do We often reduce this gift of salvation to asking Jesus into our hearts as if Jesus is merely an appendage to us. That's not the incarnation. Jesus is not an appendage. You know what I mean? God himself takes on our human condition of sin. Takes our sinful state upon himself so that he can take it from us. And free us from it. That's not an appendage. That's consuming. And that's what Jesus is doing here as he's born this day. He is consuming his very existence in our sin nature so that we no longer carry it. He carries it for us all the way to the cross. I mean, instead, it's important for us to consider the theological truth that Jesus Christ is God incarnate. And this scripture that we're reading, all of scripture speaks of the incarnation as God assuming our flesh. Assuming. Not just adding to. And Jesus Christ, who is God incarnate, whose very identity is dependent upon God the Father, takes human sin upon himself because we cannot give our sin to God the Father. He assumes our weakness. He assumes our sin and the inability to come to God upon himself into himself. Let's look over here quickly. Last night we saw this in Isaiah chapter 2. I'm sorry, Isaiah chapter 7. Let me go back here. Isaiah chapter 7. We looked at some of this last night. And I encourage you, when you read this text, try to read all of chapter 7 in context. That's what we looked at last night if you were not here. And this is Isaiah being sent to King Ahaz, who we know in 2 Kings chapter 16 uh, rebelled against God and actually gave the treasures of the temple to his enemies to appease them. And God was not very happy. 
And so Isaiah is sent to Ahaz in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 10. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. This is Isaiah speaking to Ahaz on the, on the, on, as the voice of God. This is God telling Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. Now look here at verse 13. And he said, hear then, O house of David. This is God speaking. Hear then, O house of David. Is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? In other words, you would rather question and ask for help from other kings who are your enemies than to come and ask me, your God, even though I want you to ask me. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you, this is the context. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. The context of Isaiah seven fourteen is this. The Lord is saying, Hey, Ahaz, if you will not ask me, if you would rather go to your enemies instead, I'm going to send my son because you won't do it. That's the weight here. I mean, theologian Donald Blesch says it this way. A still more dramatic way of articulating the mystery of the incarnation is to affirm that God became sin, thereby linking the incarnation to the atonement. In the words of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 and even in Romans chapter 8, Paul says this, for, for our sake, he made him to what? Be sin who knew no sin. That's what's happening at this beautiful moment of incarnational birth. Even the great Bishop of Milan who mentored and baptized Augustine, uh, Bishop Ambrose, said this, having become the sin of all men, he washed away the sins of the human race. So why is this important to remember on this Christmas day? The great prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 1 opens the series of prophecies that he has, the first six chapters of Isaiah's prophecy, describing the vanity of Israel and Judah, the vanity of men and being their own gods and being their own salvation. This is why Isaiah's prophecy is so linked to the prophecy of the coming Messiah. In chapter 1, the tone is set. Here's what Isaiah says in Isaiah 1-2. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. How many parents in this room can echo that? Children I have (laughs) reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. That's how God saw Israel. That's how God sees all of humanity. And then in Isaiah 1, verses 16 through 20, here's what Isaiah says. Wash yourself, make yourself clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the lands. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. That sets the tone for all of Isaiah's prophecies, plural. 
And all of Isaiah points to this one moment in Luke chapter 2 when the Messiah is born. That's why He came. Because God is calling us to reason together and consider our sin before Him. And to consider that it is God who willingly steps into our sin nature to step in and take that upon Himself as His Son Jesus Christ does this. That is why. I mean, to grasp the eternal significance of God's intervention into our sinful affairs, I think we have to hold to the factual historical significance of God's incarnation. It was a historical fact that Jesus was born. It is a historical fact that this baby was not of human beginnings. The Wesleyan theologian Kenneth Grider says this, says it this way. From outside and above the human experience, He entered into human form and life and experience from outside and above the historical. He entered into the historical. Meaning that God who transcends all time and history steps into time and history at this moment in Luke chapter 2. I mean, this is how we need to view the account of events surrounding Jesus's birth. I mean, there's a factual historical occurrence that leads to Jesus's birth in Bethlehem. All of these events in verses one through seven are historical realities that you can still find the historical records in Rome for. And even in Israel, you can find these records even now that record what happened. The virgin birth is in agreement with God's way of accomplishing his purposes. Here's how God does what he wants to do. Scripture, all of Scripture, tells us continually that God does not work arbitrarily by divine decree, but God works by human participation. He participates in our history. We participate in his will. God is not arbitrary. He's purposeful. And to be purposeful, he works within human history. And all of us are guided by his providential hand. You see that? In no way does this mean that God is limited to the willingness of our participation. That's a misnomer. How many people misguide that? Well, God can't do anything unless I willingly do it with him. What does that say? that we're more powerful than him. Parents, that's like if your children say, well, if I don't do it, mommy can't make me. Try saying that to God. <laughs> I, mean, never, I mean, God's purposes always play out in human history with human participants, human actors, for human benefit and for his glory. That's what this birth means. In a time when the virgin birth of Christ is increasingly ignored. And can we agree with that? That the virgin birth of our Savior is constantly ignored. It's often replaced by secular distortions of what the meaning of Christmas is. When the virgin birth of Jesus is a mere mythological tale... I think it is more important than ever for the Christian church to defend this doctrine and to give validity and compelling reasons for why we believe it. Are y'all willing to do that at Christmas time, at least, if not the rest of the year? I mean, let's close with this. In the age where Christmas movies ask us all whether we truly believe in Christmas... 
Whether we truly believe in Santa Claus, and I'm not going to get into that debate, okay, that's not worth it. Whether we truly believe in and have the Christmas spirit. This is what the Christmas movies tell us. Remember, this is how we understand Christmas Day. You realize it's through the Christmas movies. That's how we teach Christmas now. All this so that Santa's sleigh will have the magic power to travel around the world and give presents to all children all in one night. Santa can't do this if the magic power of believing is not there. That's what Christmas movies tell us. I think Christians should ponder whether we truly believe. I mean, Christians believe in the incarnation and all its implications for our sinful state. But does that ever cross our minds as Christians at this season? When we are surrounded and bombarded by Christmas movies and Christmas everything, Christmas music. I mean, there's some wonderful Christmas music in the church tradition that I say, please enjoy it. But I think it's Mariah Carey who now for the first time in pop music history has hit number one four times in a row at Christmas time with the same song. Some song she recorded like in 1990 is now number one again for the fourth time in a row at Christmas time. And that's big news. Great. But Jesus was born 2000 years ago in a stable. God took on our sinful nature. That is worth remembering. That's the headlines of this season. I mean, Christians, do you believe this? Or is this just another good story at Christmas time that you read to the children? That's what I want us to ponder. God Himself assumed our sin. His Son, Jesus Christ, sits today at the right hand of the Heavenly Father as a risen and incarnate Savior. Think about this. Jesus, who always was and was present at the beginning of all creation with the Father, that's what Scripture tells us, took on human flesh incarnate, lived, died, and rose again. All of this happened because God the Father loves us. This Jesus, He sits today at the right hand of the Heavenly Father as a risen and incarnate Savior. When Jesus' life was over, when He died on that cross and came out of that grave, He didn't cast His body aside and His spirit goes to heaven. His body went with Him. Let that sink in for a minute. Jesus right now is not some spirit or ghost sitting up in heaven beside the Father. He came to earth and was born this day 2,000 years ago. And when He died and rose again, He now ascends to heaven in this body of His, a perfected, risen body. That's the promise for you and me. That's the promise for all Christians. Those of us in Christ will do the exact same thing. We won't sit at the right hand of the Father like Jesus is, but we will sit in judgment on judgment thrones as Jesus promised. We saw that in Matthew chapter 16. Jesus has a resurrected, perfected, holy body in heaven right now. And He does that to show us that we will do the same. 
I mean, all of this is true. All of this happened again because God the Father loves us. All of this is true because God the Son lived. God the Son ministered. God the Son laughed. God the Son suffered. God the Son died. And and then He rose from the grave. He ascended into heaven for the Father's glory and for our salvation. That's what this moment is for today, folks. So my question to you is this. Do you truly believe that? Or do you believe the Christmas magic that the movies want us to believe? I see deer in headlight looks right now. I'm sorry. This is, this is God's word. This is doctrine. This is theological truth that I'm afraid the, the modern church has forgotten. Take this home. And this is a celebration, folks. This is not a, it's a weighty and everything, but it's a celebration thing. Celebrate this with your children. Yes, Jesus is born this day, but we don't celebrate a baby. We celebrate a savior. Amen. Amen. Let's ooey gooey over the babies. That's fine. But let's celebrate the risen savior who was born this day, who took on our sin. Amen. And lived perfectly. Nathan, come on forward. Let's pray. Father God Almighty, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the reality of this day that that we pause as your church. We've set aside this day to remember and honor and even celebrate the birth of your son, our Savior. Our Savior was born today, 2,000 plus years ago. Thank you, Father, for that historical truth, that eternal truth. I pray this morning, Father, that as we are surrounded and bombarded by secular meanings of Christmas, that you remind us as your church that there is more truth to this reality than what the secular entertainment industry can give us. Lord, remind us and please protect us, Father, from falling into a misunderstanding of this day. We thank you for the joy that we can celebrate today the birth of our Savior, your Son, together as your church. We thank you and we praise you for the reality that we can celebrate and build memories with our families over this day. But God, I pray that you would remind us that you loved us so much. That's why this day is possible. I pray, Lord, for your blessing on every family here every individual here. I pray for your blessing that as we depart today, that you would be in our homes, that you would celebrate with us, you would have joy with us, that you would pour out your love upon us, and that you would remind us that you took our sin upon yourself. What a day to remember. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.